0: question we're going to start off with is one from last week. Um, it's sort of a, a, a question that was related to the body of Christ and, and what we were covering in that segment. So this is from New Zealand. Uh, it says, what kind of pledge is required to become a member is baptism in the community associated with membership to this and only this community?
1: So there's a lot about that. There's a lot, there's many questions in that question. But let me just start with this. The broadest framework that we're approaching a a topic like this from is that the church is not generally in its New Testament condition or configuration. And that is to say what Peter predicted when he said that ravenous wolves would, would come and introduce destructive heresies, we believe that has happened over the centuries. And so just like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and the Anabaptists and the Wesleyans and Roger Williams, the first Baptist, we recognize that the church is on a long journey back to the pristine expression of its New Testament composition. It's not there now. So does that mean that everyone who is not a vital member of a New Testament style community is no longer part of Christ or his body? No. No, we believe that anybody who is walking by faith has an imputed membership in Christ's body. But there is a time where God is is calling us out of merely a theoretical or uh, mysterious or what's the term mystical membership and he's calling us into a concrete membership. So we look at Ezekiel 37 where the prophet envisions this valley of dry bones and we see that as a prophetic illustration of the church in our current time. We also see the uh, call of Nehemiah to restore the temple after it was destroyed, we see that as the natural precursor and illustration example of our spiritual condition now. So we ask, what constitutes Christ's body? Well, I just said that in the broadest sense, if you're walking by faith, you have an imputed membership in that body. But God wants us to be more than individual elements separated and fragmented from each other that represents the dry bones in the field and before the power of god could come on those dry bones the word of the lord began to come and the first thing is he brought bone to bone and then he brought sinew to sinew and he started making connections he started taking independence and bringing composition so we feel like as a community, our specific call is to emphasize and discover and share a community context that is not fragmented, but that is cohesive. In the broadest sense, you can't have life unless you have wholeness. And that's seen in, that if you took a, the body of a living organism, a living creature, and you started dismembering it, you would lose life. At some point, life would become uh, unsustainable. In the same way, a lot of uh, independence has been propagated in Christianity. And people confuse the virtue that is appropriate to a secular society. And I'm talking about a virtue of multiculturalism and free choice and independence. When we're talking about secular powers, that's essential. We all need to be able to find our own way. But when we're talking about composing a living organism of many different parts in the body of Christ, independence is the enemy. Independence is unsustainable if you would want to pursue life. And so in the broadest sense, we're going to say that to join Christ's body in the sense of the restored reality, the the reality that he is restoring on the earth, You are seeking to become a pillar in a house, and the pillar goes out no more, Revelations 3.12 says. You're not looking for independence. You're looking for God to compose you into his given place. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 that the Lord has composed the body just as he wanted it to be. And so we ask ourselves if we, if we, I'm going between a, a temple analogy and a body analogy, but Jesus said his body was the temple. So bear with me, but Paul, if, if we are the body of Christ, can my hand just haphazardly detach from my arm and, and choose to detach to my forehead to express its independence? Or can my right leg trade places with my left arm to choose to express its freedom in Christ? No, we would recognize that in in the natural realm, those such independence, such quote-unquote liberty, is death. And so, we're striving as Christians who are seeking to restore the body of Christ. We're striving to see where is God composing me, where is God placing me, where is my permanent belonging, where where do I abide? Jesus is. Uh, message from John 15 is important abide in the vine remain is the word just stick with it and and this radical independence that takes us to the vine and then detaches us from the vine and puts us in another place we don't see it as life we see it as the opposite And so we have a hard time imagining that someone can commit to Christ without committing to his body In Matthew 10 40 and John uh, 13 20 Jesus talks about whoever does something to you does it to me and does it to him who sent me so you cannot say I'm in love with this person's head but not their body likewise you cannot say I'm in love with Christ but not his body you have to find those real tangible relationships where God is grafting you in and that that should be something of somewhat permanence. So, so when we think about joining Christ, we remember Paul saying, we're all baptized by one spirit into one body. He did not conceive of baptism except as baptism into. Baptism was, was like the Red Sea, and the Red Sea was the threshold between two different realms, the realm of Egypt and the realm of Canaan. And so, in the same way, baptism is the demarcation, the, uh, the um, border security place <laughs> where we exit one place and transition into another. And broadly, we're transitioning into the body of Christ, but we're not transitioning, hopefully, into a valley of dry bones. Hopefully, we're transitioning into a place where those, those bones are coming together, bone to bone, ligament to ligament, sinew to sinew, until the breath of god comes and we rise up as a mighty army and and this this restoration you know so so baptism is when we make this commitment into christ you know baptism is there's one baptism but it's twofold um i am my my corporal self is baptized in water my incorporeal self my spiritual self is baptized in the holy ghost but these are, this is one baptism, and both the spirit baptism and the water baptism puts me into the body. It takes me out of one dominion where I'm Lord, and it puts me in another dominion where Jesus is Lord. The pledge of baptism in 1 Peter 3.21, he says, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but the pledge of a good conscience, the NIV says. The New King James renders that the answer of a good conscience, which is also valid. Martin Luther translated that word epiratima in the Greek, he translated that as covenant of a good conscience. So when I'm baptized, I'm broadly saying I am covenanting to make Jesus my only Lord and sovereign. But I'm also saying this commitment to the Lord whom I cannot see is walked out with brothers whom I can see. And I've got to, in Paul's words, discern the body, uh, especially through communion and so on and so forth. So in this context, if if you're asking what is necessary to become part of this context, we would say, well, you need to make a saving pledge. Baptism as an individual act doesn't save you. Your relationship with God saves you. But baptism binds you to the relationship that saves you, just like a marriage vow binds you to the course, uh, a wedding vow binds you to the course of, of of a marriage or of of covenant love in that sense. And so, in in if you if you're wanting to become part of this body, you're saying, Lord, I have discerned your your body in this place as a given for me, and then I have. Discerned that you have made a choice, not me. Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. So Lord, I have discerned that you made a choice and you have composed me. You have taken this part of the body and said, it goes here. And that's an abiding commitment. And it doesn't mean that your geographical location can't change. It doesn't mean the context or nature of your service isn't gonna adjust from time to time. Both of those things are going to happen. But generally speaking, we see that someone becomes part of this fellowship when they discern that this is the expression of the global body that God is grafting them into. And as Peter says, or as, it, as Luke actually says in Acts 3, he says, um, as many as received Peter's words with gladness were, uh, were baptized and 3,000 souls were added to their number. So souls moved from Egypt citizenship to fellowship citizenship, um, the fellowship of the Acts community there, and and it, they saw it as souls being added to that congregation, and 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 you can't separate. You can't say, well, that's just local membership, and then there's global membership. Well. I don't think that uh, the global membership has much meaning, except in the sense that God brings the the dry bones into a, one place, so that then He can put them together as a living organism. I know that's a long answer. Come back at me if I got it wrong.
0: I think one thing that I would add is that um, I find it interesting. You know, most of the people that would can you know that would that we would talk to would consider their spiritual heritage or their. Their roots to be somewhat tied to those who came across the sea and established the original colonies that were out here. Um, whether or not that was the Puritan movement or whatever group it is, it's probably going to have some of its source in one of those early colonies. And you're going to say that was really the, um, the representation of a true devotion unto Christ, of a separation from everything that had polluted the faith in Europe. And it was really you know, the planting of a new flag of those who would be devoted unto the Lord. And yet, if you read any of the journals of those early men, whether it's Bradford or Winthrop or, or whoever you're going to read, you're going to find this common theme time and time and time again. And this is what they're going to say. They're going to say that this move um, over across the sea into the establishment of Zion or the true church will require a rediscovery of covenantal love. Mm. And they said that, in fact... The faith that is required to say that you believe in God, but then disconnect yourself from all horizontal relationships that would require that belief to have a context to walk it out in is an easy faith. But the faith that was laid in front of the church was a faith that would have to require, and these are their words, to trust that through imperfect vessels, God was moving in and through them, and we would have to bind ourselves horizontally one to another in covenantal bonds in order for this all to work. In fact, in one of these books that's documenting their biographies, the writer says, covenant, it is a word almost never heard of in American life today for it speaks of a commitment to Christ and to one another which is deeper and more demanding than most of us are willing to make. And as a consequence, most of us modern American Christians are of little use to God in the building of his kingdom, for the building of that kingdom, as the Puritans demonstrated, required a total commitment." Now, I'm just gonna read something a little bit more to drive this point home. This is right out of Bradford's journal. And what's going on is this is, um, I I believe it's a couple weeks before his death, he's lamenting that he doesn't think that what started the church in the original colony as they came over is going to endure to the next generation. He's seeing that there's a breakdown that's happening. And you want to know what he puts his finger on is going to be the cause for this entire deterioration of what God had started as a movement? Mm He says it's going to be their misappraisal of the need for horizontal covenant to be made one to another. Listen to what he says. He says, The tragedy was poignantly expressed by Bradford, who stood at the end of his life like old Jacob, weeping for his sons gone into Egypt, looking back and measuring what might have been by what they had actually had in the beginning. In 1655, two years before he died, as he reviewed the history which he had written of the Plymouth Plantation, he came to the letter that Pastor John Robinson and Elder William Brewster had written from Leyden to Edwin Sandys in London. The letter brimmed with the confidence that all, although other attempts at colonization have failed miserably, their colonization there is other attempts at the church, that's what they believed they were doing. Their situation was unique and unprecedented because of the proven strength of their covenantal relationships. Indeed, they were knit together as one body in a most strict and sacred bond and covenant of the Lord. Of the violation, wherefore, we make great conscience, and by virtue, wherefore, we do hold ourselves straightly tied to all care for each other's good, and of the whole by everyone, and so mutually. He says, reading that, after he got done reading this letter, went from one pastor to another pastor talking about the inviolable lines of covenant that had been made one to another. He said after he got done reading that, Bradford lost his customary composure and in a moment of rare and overwhelming anguish poured his heart on the back of that particular page in his manuscript saying this, O sacred bond, whilst inviolably preserved... How sweet and precious were the fruits that flowed from the same. You see what he said? He said, when this covenant was intact, don't you remember what we all enjoyed as a result? The unity of the faith, the things that came flowing to us from God. And he said, while those things stood unviolated, what a remarkable thing had been accomplished. Well, listen to what he said. He says, um, but when fidelity decayed, then their ruin approached. Oh, that these ancient members had not died or been dissipated. Oh, that the men who understood this had not passed on, or, or, or their view the, the 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 thing that drove their their whole course that it that it would have not have dissipated on the ground, but it would have been carried to the next generation is what he 's saying, or else that his holy care and constant faithfulness had still lived and remained with those who survived now listen, he says not one, not even Bradford was denying that the settlement of the wilderness to the west was part of god 's plan listen to what he says it 's not about the advancement of the work he said he 's perceiving a deterioration. But that was the minister's whole point. It should be carried out as part of God's plan in accordance with his perfect will and timing. It should not be done willy-nilly by isolated individualists who could not care less about doing God's will. Where a new stretch of bottomland was concerned, heedless of the covenants they had sworn, without bothering to submit their decision to the elders of their church, let alone obtain the permission of civil authorities, they simply departed. And he goes on to talk about some of the consequences of those who were breaking this covenant and disdaining it. And and he's saying that, don't they understand that this was the lifeblood of how the church formed, you know? And and I'll tell you, you know, just one passage, because some people might sit there and go, well, that's great that the early settlers thought so highly of covenant, but, you know, did the, does 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 the Bible think in this same terms, you know? But when you, when you look at so many passages of scripture, how do we understand these things? Unless we understand that God is calling us into relationship with one another. How do we understand? We won't get into this right now, but how do we understand a Deuteronomy 12 where he says, you know, no longer shall every man do according to his own. But when I show you the place in which I'm going to put my name there, I will compose a temple and there you shall worship my name. There you shall bring your offerings. There you shall bring your tithes. There you shall bring your sacrifices and there and there alone. Right now you guys have all gone according to your course, but there's coming a day which I'll show you where my name is, where my authority is. That's what he's saying. He said, and when I plant my authority in that place, I'm going to fashion a house. And in that house, I'm going to fill it with my very presence. And isn't that the promise of the New Testament? Amen. Of a spiritual house that God will build and his name or authority will be there? How are we going to understand this from a universal sense? It, you know, it in fact, doesn't it rob us of all the things that his authority would do to change and to transform us? Isn't it his authority that starts to call us in that individualistic self Seeking self-conceited life and and show us all the pitfalls. You know, isn't it that individualistic life, that self-absorbed life that bristle us in all the relationships? Isn't it what betrays our marriages? Isn't it what breaks down the foundations of our home? Isn't it what societies war over and kill each other over? Isn't that what he says? You ask and you ask amiss because you want to spend it on your own desires. So what other context does God give us in order to come underneath his authority? Except for those who are coming under his name. Those who are laying down their own authority and coming underneath the authority of our Lord and under his name. And in doing so, don't we then forfeit that individualistic life? Don't we then have relationships right next to one another that start to combat everything that would be contrary to God and his kingdom? Think of how Paul said it. He said this in Ephesians 1, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He says, listen, he was appointed in heavenly places as having all rule, all dominion, all authority. And he said, and that appointment was in his body. Do you follow? He says his authority, his dominion was appointed in his body. And then he tells you what that body is. It's the church, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The idea of almost heaven and earth meeting together. There's no gap anymore. Both of them now are reaching one another and where? In his body. In those born of his spirit. In those who are called by his name. And if you think that Paul's confused here, he's not, because the next chapter says you used to be under a different authority, didn't you? You were dead in your sins and trespasses, and you had an authority over your life. Listen to what that authority was: fallen the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in sons of disobedience, among whom you used to live in your own passions. You used to live according to your own desires, and that was according to a different authority. But now a new authority is on this earth, and that authority is underneath his headship, underneath the Lord and his body. And he goes on there to say, listen, you were once alienated, but through the cross, he has removed the flesh, which would be the dividing wall of hostility. He's saying, look, what what causes problems in relationships is the flesh. And he removed that by the power of the cross so that the dividing wall of hostility could come down and we could all come in and relate one to another rightly. Is there any question why then he goes on and says that, look, I pray all the time to the Father which every family on this earth derives its source or authority from. And I pray that you guys would be knitted together in the love of Christ and comprehend its height and its depth and its breadth and its width so that you would have all the fullness of God dwelling in a people. Amen. And then he goes on to the passage that Brother Ossie just quoted because there's one faith, one Baptism, One Spirit. I mean, he starts talking about, don't you see? He's created one new man in the authority of the body Amen. or under his name. Amen. Amen. And so this is his old argument. He's going to go on and talk about all the things in the flesh that wage war against the church. And guess everything he describes to you. It's everything that comes out of selfish desire and selfish ambition. And he's going to tell you to put those things to death and put on Christ. Well, how am I going to put on Christ? Well, you're going to have to come into the context of his body. You're going to have to covenant one with another in a commitment that says we will not live for ourselves. But behold, a new creation is on this earth amen. underneath the lordship of Jesus himself. Amen. 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 I don't know if that, that was kind of
1: off for the sure. same question, to, but I amen. I up on the same idea. You know, ask yourself... There's this notion that says that anyone who names the name of Christ is part of his body. And I can say that anyone who is walking by faith has an imputed membership in a body that is yet to be realized in their daily life. But you cannot call a bone a body. And you cannot call a stone a house. In fact, you can't even call a pile of stones a house. The difference between a pile of stones and a house is the order by which those stones are configured. And the difference between a bunch of bones and a body is again the order by which those elements are configured. Mm -hmm. So when Christians order themselves according to independent chaotic desires, they end up with body parts, but they don't end up with a body. And when you take that body apart, when it's no longer ordered according to the Lord's desire, it's no longer a body not in any real sense now i'm not judging those who have no other option and who are seeking the body who are seeking to be composed but listen to listen to what he says here in ephesians 2 paul says and jesus came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near and by this he means that he he brought the message of the gospel "...to the Jews who were near to it, not far from the kingdom, and he brought the message of the gospel to the Gentiles who were far from it. For through him we both, that is Jews and Gentiles, have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are members of God's household." having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. So here he says, we're still growing. Paul didn't say it was done, but he says it's being fitted together. Now We're building a house right now, and that's where I was before I came up here, and... The precision, the precision of how you bring building elements together cannot be overstated. And that's why in, in the symbolic natural time, in the days of Nehemiah and Ezra, it says that the seven spirits, which refer to the seven guardians of the churches, the seven angel, uh, church angels, says they rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel, which means the one out of Babel, the one out of Babylon. This composition of a temple is not just piling stones into a room and saying, we love Christ, it's a temple. No, it's not a temple until he fits those stones, until he composes those stones, until he orders those stones. Roger Williams, back in the 1600s, said, I consider the flock of Christ scattered and not composed at their heart's desire. He said I in, I consider the individual sheep of Jesus but he bewailed that there was no extant church of his day. Paul goes on, the whole building is being fitted together and is growing into a holy temple in whom you are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. And then over here in in uh, verse 16 He says, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Now I just, first of all, he's speaking of immaturity. That's the word children, he's speaking of immaturity. And he says, I don't want you to be immature. How does he describe immaturity? Immaturity is people flopped around. It's independence. They think they're getting an insight, but they're just being carried around by crazy notions. We're no longer to be children carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, the antidote to independence is hearing the truth. Independence causes truth to be relative. It's your truth. It's my truth. Oh, that's your interpretation. But there is a truth because there is one who says, I am the truth. As a result, we are no longer to be children. But speaking the truth in love... We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by whatever joint supplies. So the whole body is fitted and held together. The body is not randomly amassed. It's like the difference between my five-year-old building a house and the architect building a house. The, the, the immature just pile elements together and call it the body of Christ. No, it's not. It's not the body of Christ, except in some imputed sense where God is calling those things that are not as though they are because you're walking by faith, but he's leading you toward the reality. He says, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. Now, what? how does a joint hold us together? Right, right. You know, the bone of my arm and the bone of my forearm the bone of my, uh, of, my, of, my, uh, of my hands, the bones of my hands, the bones of my arm, they don't hold together unless there are joints, which refer to covenant, that don't let them be independent. So he says the body is held together by joints. There have to be joints between members, not just between me and Jesus, but between this bone and this bone. they got to be held together. By what every joint and ligament supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. And this causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So I say this and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles walk in the futility of your thinking. He doesn't want that independence where everyone's doing what's right in his own mind. That's walking as the Gentiles walk. But God is bringing us if there is any joy, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, where we have the same spirit, and we're held together by whatever joint and ligament supplies. And and somebody will say, well, why don't you baptize people into the universal body and not just your local expression? Well, that's that's like saying, um, you know, I'm not called to amass members uh, at random. I'm called to baptize for the purpose of discipleship. So he says, go into all the world and make disciples baptizing them. So baptism binds you to the relationship of discipleship that's going to transform you into the image of God's Son. So if I just go out and make baptized converts, do you believe on the Lord Jesus? Here, let's get in the water. Then I have robbed baptism of its meaning because I have not grafted that person into a discipleship relationship, and I have not fulfilled the Great Commission. I have have given birth to a baby, and I have laid that baby on the road and called it independence. But babies are born into families, into the arms of mothers and fathers. They are discipled, they are cared for. So we don't baptize people except into a local expression. Now we may say, They don't know yet God's going to show them or whatnot. That's happened before. But even then, they're covenanting to a people of like mind, a people of shared conviction, a people of truth. When Jesus first gave the Last Supper there in in Matthew 26, 28, he lifted the wine and he said, drink, this is the blood of the new covenant shed for the remission of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. So, Nobody doubts that when he says this is the blood of the new covenant and it is for the remission of sins, nobody doubts that he means what he says, that his blood remits our sins. But that is exact, that is the exact phraseology Peter used when he spoke of baptism. He said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So he, is, he has taken that, that phraseology which Jesus reserved for his covenant blood and he has said, he is in essence saying to us, if you want to be grafted into the place where your sins are forgiven and your character is discipled and you are conformed to the image of another, namely Christ Jesus, then you're going to enter that relationship through a covenant of baptism. That's why he calls it the Pledge. That's why Luther called it the Covenant. And so we're not interested in baptizing people at random. We, see, we can conceive of no meaning to baptism except to bind them to a saving relationship, which is to say a discipling relationship.
0: Amen. I, I will say, I just think this will be funny to read. <laughs> I, I don't know why, but I've never seen this verse that way until we were just talking about it right now. Um, But here is the context. I'll just read a few verses. This is 1 Corinthians 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Now, here's verse 18. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he has chosen. Okay, so everyone follow, he says, but listen, when each one of these people were born again of God's Spirit and baptized, God is the one who assembled these stones into his own house, right? Amen, each one of them. Now now listen to this, though, just to drive home what Brother Hossie just shared. This is verse 19. If all were a single member, where would the body be? I guess we would all say, (laughs) who are asking this question, well, it would be the universal body, don't you know, Paul? You know, see what Paul's saying? He goes, if it's just an individual member, not uniquely fitted in relationships to those that God has assembled, then where's the body? He's saying the body can't be there unless it's being composed of God in which people are submitting unto the Lord to put them together and to assemble them together. Isn't it interesting, and, and, and then I really am done on this topic, but isn't it interesting that when you, go to, when you go to ask someone about their testimony, what you're looking for is to hear their story about when they encountered God, Whether or not they were led to Calvary, whether or not in finding death at Calvary, they were buried and came to the other side of a resurrected life. Whether or not they're walking according to the spirit and the newness of life. Aren't you interested in kind of seeing like where they're at in their story? You're asking questions. You're kind of, you know, you're following along. Maybe you find them. They haven't met Calvary yet. They just heard the follow me and an invitation of forgiveness of sin, and they're started their journey, but they haven't yet found a baptism into the Jordan, a, a complete laying down of one's life, the new creation on the other side of death, you know, but shouldn't we take the same approach then according to the scriptures when we find a group of people assembled together who are called the church? Should it we start to ask, so tell us, how did God compose this body? And if they were to say, well... I graduated seminary. We did a focus study, and we um, sent out surveys across the area. I ran into a pastor when I was in Southern California who was starting a Baptist church, a well-meaning man, and I had coffee with him. And I said, you know, so why are you guys starting a church here in Southern California? He said, well, we sent out a survey, and we found that Baptist, um, denomination, the Baptist denomination was um, um, sparsely represented, underrepresented in the Santa Clarita Valley. And so there was room... For a Baptist congregation to be planted there. And he goes, and so when we got done with all the surveys, we found out what the average household income was and, and all these things to see if, if, if based upon tithing percentages, I mean, at least he was honest, tithing percentages and so on and so on, us church could be supported, you know? And after we've run all this, we've decided that we could put a church here in Southern California. Now, let me ask you, does that sound like a church that God is composing or does that sound like a work of man? And isn't that what we should be looking for when we're looking? You know, what if you ask somebody, tell me about how the church started, and they say, well, a bunch of us started crying out to the Lord on a carpet floor, and we begged God to bring us into true repentance. And we found a death completely that we were able to be immersed or baptized into our Lord's cross, and we were able to experience the power of a resurrected life. And on the other side of that, When the enemies had been put to rest because they had been put underneath his feet, we found us staring at one another going, what now? And God said, I'm going to assemble you all together into a spiritual dwelling for me so that I might explain myself to this broken world. Now that, you heard that story, you'd start to go, That sounds like a work of God. That sounds like something that he's composing. Isn't it interesting in Deuteronomy 12, last thing, isn't it interesting in Deuteronomy 12 in that passage that he says, you guys get to worship Yahweh the way you want to right now. And he says, but there's coming a time when all the enemies of the land have been dispelled. And that's when I'll show you the place that I'm going to put my name. Isn't it interesting that, isn't that the experience of any believer? Once, once, Those enemies have been put to death and mortified. You know, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified their desires and passions. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Once there's been that type of change, isn't the next thing that God starts to do in your life is start to show you key relationships that he has configured and put in you in? The question is, do you reject that authority and go off on your individual course? Or do you prove that your repentance was thorough and sincere and you say, Lord, assemble me together according to your composition? Amen. 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 So, sorry, we, well, we've I really mean, hit this I've got topic. To
1: say one more thing, right? <laughs> I'm sorry, I've got to say one more thing. Amen. You know, God is not interested in establishing a whole bunch of uh, individuals on the earth who call themselves saved. He is interested Amen. in establishing a corporate body, a corporate temple, one new man. It says that Jesus gave himself for her, meaning the church. In Ephesians 5, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church when he gave himself for her. His sacrifice on the cross was not for millions of individuals. Yes, it was, but it was for her. It was for a single entity called the body of Christ and that bride of Christ obviously is one with Christ that's the great mystery this fact is borne out when new believers in the in the New Testament encounter the Lord Jesus himself he did not give them the plan of salvation when Paul was on the road to Damascus and a great light shines and he falls to the ground and he has this conversation directly with the Lord First of all, he's, it, we are told that he was persecuting the church. Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? He says, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus. So there is no distinction between persecuting the church and persecuting Jesus. And then he says, uh, you know, I will show you this and that and the other thing. But the interesting thing, Paul has an audience with our only Lord and Sovereign and Jesus does not give him the plan of salvation. He says, I want you to travel some distance, wait in a house, and ask for a man who will tell you what you must do. Jesus was not interested in making Paul this independent guy who had a direct contact only with the Lord. Jesus wanted wanted to integrate Paul into the body of Christ. And so he says, go to the street called Straight, and it will be told you what you must do. He wanted Paul to submit to other men telling him what to do. Now, don't tell me Jesus couldn't have given Paul the plan of salvation right then and there. And don't tell me it wouldn't have flattered Paul's image to be able to say, I didn't learn this from anybody. We know Paul didn't learn revelations from anybody, but God made him dependent on other people from the very start. The same is true of Cornelius, who is a Gentile, and he's seeking, and he has an audience with an angel. His prayers and alms ascend and make a memorial before the Lord, and then he says the angel appears before him, and and he says, "I have heard you. I've heard you. I'm paraphrasing, but I've heard your 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 prayers and so on and so forth. And so, send to Joppa and ask for a man who will tell you what you must do. You know, God is not interested in me and Jesus got our own thing going. He gave Himself for the church. He gave Himself for a singular entity called the church. And yet, all we, the only construct in which we." imagine salvation, is entirely individualistic. But Jesus did not present a salvation that would work for isolated individuals. He said, upon this rock, I will build my church. Not my individual, not even my family. But he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it The gates of hell will prevail against an individual. We see the gates of hell, the authority of hell, prevailing against a family here and an individual there. Because he who separates himself, isolates himself, seeks his own desire and rages against wise judgment. But the gates of hell will not prevail against a city compacted together, Jerusalem from above. The gates of hell will not prevail against us if we are truly gathered in his name. That doesn't mean clustering in a space, that means truly composed and gathered and united and submitted to his name and the authority that that name indicates. Amen. Amen.